0: You're listening to the Guest Lecture Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Stan Hoover, a counselor educator at Messiah College, and this podcast is an extension of my classroom. Each episode features a guest lecturer who's an expert on topics that my students and I are interested in, mostly related to counseling, trauma, and spirituality. today is Dr. Bethany Brand, a professor of psychology at Towson University and practicing clinical psychologist who specializes in the assessment and treatment of trauma and dissociative disorders. She's an award-winning researcher who's currently the principal investigator of an international series of outcome studies on the treatment of patients with dissociative disorders. Dr. Brand earned her PhD in clinical and community psychology at the University of Maryland and was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship in Shepard Pratt's Trauma Disorders Program, where she now serves as Psychological Assessment Supervisor. Dr. Pratt really is an expert who's at the top of her field, and I could not have been more pleased that she agreed to talk with me for a bit about the experience of dissociation as a result of trauma. Here's the interview. But we'll figure it out together. Yeah. All right. We're rolling. Thanks Thanks so much again for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I think a a good place to start, um, I'd just be curious to hear more about you and and what got you into this uh, this particular work. So I I read in your bio, I know your interest in trauma and dissociation especially goes back to to an internship at at Johns Hopkins. And I'm just curious how that experience working with kids who were affected by trauma really affected you back then, but then also going put you on this trajectory uh, for your research and, and clinical practice?
1: Yes, sure. So when I was at Johns Hopkins University, I was doing my psychological testing practicum
2: mm-hmm.
1: in my first year in grad school. And Hopkins is in the, you know, at that point, pretty rough part of town in Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, surrounded by a lot of projects and a lot of the people that would go there, well, on the inpatient unit for kids. Um, had been exposed to a lot of trauma Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember seeing it written in the kids charts and asking my supervisor so how would kids who've been traumatized psych testing differ from those who hadn't been traumatized Mm
2: -hmm.
1: she had no idea Mm -hmm. so that's how it was (laughs) in the late 80s I mean people just didn't know about trauma yet yeah Um, and you know that's at Hopkins she was a very good supervisor but she didn't know. And then she asked her supervisor that question. And he invited us a few weeks later into his office, um, myself and another intern and, and my supervisor. And he did an impromptu off the cuff discussion about trauma and how he treats it in his own, uh, in his own patients.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was the most fascinating thing hearing how children would symbolize being, um, overtaken and terrorized by like an animal when in fact they'd actually been traumatized by a human and how he I was fascinated so I started talking at school about my interest in that Mm -hmm. none of the professors knew anything about trauma it was Uh the time um you know and PTSD had only been added to the DSM in 1980 so it was it was just relatively new at that point right. um, they hadn't been trained in it as as professors in their own training they hadn't they didn't know about it mm-hmm. so i just started talking to my professors and letting them know about my interest and i ended up uh my advisor who is also the head of the clinical program got a call one day from a man named frank putnam mm-hmm who is, I see you smiling, so you know exactly who Frank Putnam is, you know, one of the legends, legends in the trauma field, in particular, for his influence on developing three different measures for assessing dissociation across um, the lifespan, right, and he's done some pioneering work about helping families who are at risk, and preventing trauma, and you know, some amazing work. Anyway, he wasn't famous then, and he called to my department and asked if any grad students might be interested in trauma and would they be willing to volunteer on a study. Mm-hmm. That was his, um, he's done one of three, a- at that point, it was one of the first um, longitudinal follow-up studies that had a group of uh, sexually abused girls with a control group and followed them um, with unbelievable amounts of, careful follow-up for over 20 years now.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So he helped us learn about the impact of trauma on this uh, HPA axis, growth hormones, all kinds of research, including dissociation. Mm -hmm. So I worked with him uh, for a while and used a little bit of his data for my master's. And then by the time my dissertation rolled around, the uh, department had hired a new person, a new faculty member, uh, Dr. Pamela, as in trauma, and I did my dissertation with her. Um, Then on internship at George Washington University Hospital, a a patient announced that she had multiple personalities, and we were all very dubious, (laughs) Hmm. myself included, because I hadn't seen anybody with that disorder, even though I'd worked with Frank uh, Putnam. We had worked with the, you know, kids, families. I hadn't seen somebody with, you know, back then what was called MPD. Um, But I trusted Frank. He was so, and is so smart and careful to stick to data. Um, And, you know, he's not a dramatic person. He's not going to believe in something unless it's legitimate. But nonetheless, I hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. So my psych testing supervisor suggested I call up to Shepard Pratt. And there's a woman up there who had done some preliminary research on dissociative patients. And she suggested I walk through the testing with her, and that was Dr. Judy Armstrong. Um, And Judy Armstrong was kind enough to actually let me talk to her about what the testing looked like. And at the end of it, she said, you know what? You actually might have somebody with multiple personality disorder.
2: Mm.
1: So... I went ahead um, the following year and applied for a postdoc and got a postdoc at Shepherd Pratt, and they had just opened a trauma disorders program.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was at the right place at the right time and had made some really lucky linkages along the way. Um, I didn't even know they had a trauma unit. I thought I was applying to a general postdoc, and the head of psychology saw my resume and saw I had done all this trauma work, because by then I had volunteered at DC Rape Crisis Center. I had done my master's and dissertation on trauma, um, and so I was their first first postdoc. And so mm-hmm. I got into the field of dissociative disorders intensively at that point, having not ever with certainty met somebody who had full-blown dissociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. And then I started seeing it all over the place, I mean, because that's what that unit specialized in.
0: Right. It's just fascinating to hear the kind of historical perspective, because it feels so different to me where trauma awareness and trauma-informed practice is seems to be all over the place.
1: Yes, but when you actually look at research asking clinicians who are out and licensed for a while about their training, they, they haven't had much training in trauma. Mm-hmm. If they've had, it's often, it, when it comes to dissociative disorders, it often comes to not a very balanced perspective on the evidence about those disorders and how to treat them. Because I'm sure you're aware there's a, a, some controversy where there's some very outspoken and highly published critics of dissociation um, and uh, you know, they support false memories and the iatrogenic effects um, thinking that dissociative identity disorder is iatrogenically created um uh, you know unintentionally created by therapists who suggest it to clients or mm-hmm. by the media by watching the movie civil somehow that makes people supposedly develop <laughs> <the> social <laughs> identity disorder so anyway fantasy model the fantasy model that's what we've come to call it in the last couple of years in our writing they in um critics, I'll refer to them interchangeably as the fantasy model proponents, the adjunct model, sociocultural model, those are all the same group of people in the same theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have gotten their perspective very well um, covered in psychology textbooks. Mm. So many, many undergrads, when they learn about psychology, when they learn about dissociation for the first time, dissociative disorders, they're fascinated, but the Textbooks tend to not all of them, but um, a good third of them, according to research my lab has done, a good third of them emphasize the false memory perspective and don't actually show uh, and detail the evidence supporting the trauma model of dissociation. Mm -hmm. So it's a long-winded way of saying that many, many. Mental health professionals and students don't really understand the facts, the evidence about dissociative disorders. Yeah,
0: well, and it sounds like the facts are what kind of brought you along. Someone who was maybe skeptical at at first, and even Dr. Putnam skeptical at first, until you look at the look at the data and see it see it shape this trauma model of dissociation. Can you set us straight? Can you tell us more about that? (laughs) What What is dissociation actually, and and how is it how is it related to trauma?
1: So a quote from Frank Putnam that I love is, dissociation is the escape when there is no escape. Hmm. So when children are in situations where it is actually incredibly dangerous and there's somebody, typically a caregiver, you know, some adult who has, or older teenager, for example, who has easy access to the child um, and the child's quite young and they can't escape. You know, they've got a big person who's making them do things. Whether it's, you know, physical abuse or sexual abuse, when it's inescapable, then they go away in their mind because they can't get away physically, mm-hmm. and so they detach from their emotions, from their body, um, and in cases, especially where it tends to be more repeated trauma, they can detach from even remembering it in a different state you know, in the trauma state, when they're thinking about that, when, when it's on, when it's going on, they're aware of what's happening. But because it's an awful recollection, it feels so terrifying, so um shaming. And it's confusing to them. They try not to think about it. You know, like any of us, we don't like to think about things that make us feel awful. And so we try not to think about it. But then that's the whole nature of PTSD, right? Is we try not to think about that which has been so harmful, and then it, it keeps intruding into our minds again and again and again. So that's PTSD in general, you know, plus all the physiological hyperarousal. Um, so with dissociative adults or children, they often meet full criteria for PTSD or, or you know, sub-threshold criteria for PTSD. And dissociation is their way of coping. Um, as best we know there's probably some biological predisposition Uh, you know there's some twin studies that make it look like there's probably at least for some some biologically enhanced ability to dissociate Mm -hmm. we don't know we need more research in that area but it's definitely early childhood trauma that's repetitive in particular that hones that ability to disconnect to not feel to see yourself from out of body Or over time, if it's a caregiver who the child has both a very strong need for attachment, they need that person, and yet the person who they need, if that's the abuser, that's also the person that terrifies them and hurts them and at times acts so differently, they can't integrate that. And so those are different states. Um, Frank Putnam talks about uh, the discrete behavioral model of dissociation, where they don't end up integrating these different states of themselves and of their actual reality. They keep them separate because the adult um, is not actually helping them integrate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just a a bit more about that. Parents are supposed to help their children who have very discreet um, sudden shifts in state. Like, you know, it can be very calm and uh, uh, fed, and then, you know, falls asleep very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then we'll wake up, you know, fussing for a few seconds and then hungry and crying. Right. Over time, a parent's job is to help the child smooth those states and be able, you know, obviously as they get older, to be able to convey their needs and not to have such dramatic shifts um, as they do in infancy and preschool years. Mm-hmm. But if you're growing up in a very dysfunctional environment where an adult is precipitating some of these state changes, you know, making you do all things. Right. And they're not helping you learn to integrate and process emotions. And so that child never um, becomes as integrated as we're supposed to. So that can lead to or contribute to the development in, in some cases of severe ongoing early abuse that can lead to these discrete states um, that are dissociative. Uh, sometimes called personalities, or alters, or identities. Right.
0: I mean, it really makes sense from a developmental perspective. Yes. But but, but I'm also really struck by the way you framed association. Um, you know, it's it, it's an escape. It's a safety-seeking, adaptive.
1: Yes. yes.
0: Uh, function. I think that's really important for for people to to recognize.
1: Right. Um, I, it used to confuse me when I was a postdoc and trying to learn about it because I would see adults you know, on the inpatient unit where I work. And so, dissociation would happen all the time you know in a community mm-hmm. meeting if somebody got upset they'd start dissociating yeah. you know if another patient started getting loud a couple of patients in the room would start dissociating mm-hmm. they'd go away in their mind they'd curl up into a little ball they'd start rocking and pretty soon they might be just kind of completely detached from the environment that's just an example mm-hmm. and so I would struggle with it like it's supposed to be adaptive but this isn't adaptive <laughs> <laughs> um and then, of course, I, I came to figure out that it's adaptive in childhood while the trauma is ongoing and there is no other way to protect yourself. but it becomes an overlearned habit where they okay. often dissociate in response to triggers around them, you know things that are not necessarily dangerous in the present moment but mm-hmm. feel dangerous because it's anger, for example, it's a loud noise, for example. And so they have this overuse of dissociation that can then cause all kinds of difficulties in their day-to-day lives and their relationships because they're still using that form of coping and they haven't developed other ways or haven't fully developed other healthier ways of coping when life is safe.
0: Mm -hmm. So you said something interesting. You talked about sitting in those groups and you could actually observe a patient Dissociate, and I was going to ask you if, if you could if you could see it in the way that a patient presents. Um, and and I, I I heard a talk that you gave at at, at at Towson, and you actually did describe what that what that looks like. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm
1: wondering if you can share that with us. Sure. So uh, normally I, I realize this is just an audio recording, but normally you know I'm I'm looking around the room and I'm moving my hands, and you know all of us have behaviors that we're engaged in when we're having a conversation. And we're, you know, generally speaking, a lot of us make eye contact. Mm -hmm. Um, When somebody begins to dissociate, a lot of that ceases. So Mm -hmm. uh, um, the more profound forms of dissociation, I'm going to imitate it. So somebody's voice begins sometimes... To slow and lose the rhythm, I'm still. I have still have too much prosody, but it, it gets kind of flat, and they sound <laughs> like they may be far away and starting to enter a, a you know a trance state, mm-hmm. and they often physically begin to hold very still. Their eyes are typically averted. They may hide under their hair or underneath their. their they may put a hand over their eyes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so they're kind of covering their face, and if if they keep continuing to dissociate, they may curl up and put their legs underneath them, for example, sitting in a chair. Um, and they just may then hold very, very still. Mm-hmm. A less dramatic form is if somebody is has got a, a pretty serious dissociative disorder, they may blink um, or show a very rapid eye roll. So what we've come to understand is that these can be um, moments of shifting very subtly, state where there it's basically kind of a self-induced trance. Um, I'm remembering a client of mine looking down at the pattern in my rug. Um, this was back when I was a postdoc, so I was new to this. And I, she looked down at the rug and then she looked back up, kind of blinked, and she had switched states, and I hadn't caught it. And she said, "You don't even know when I'm switching." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, oh. <laughs> and she had learned to do it in a very subtle way, mm-hmm. um, because in her family, if you showed emotion or showed much of anything, you were more vulnerable to being, you know, picked on emotionally or otherwise.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, for many people, they cover it up, they hide it. It's not like in the movies where people are really dramatic, yeah, um, and you know, suddenly they look like, you know, just drastically different from who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, It tends to be much more subtle, um, hidden little shifts like that. And so I think that's part of why many clinicians miss it, and myself included. When I was a trainee, I didn't realize that it could be subtle shifting of states. I thought of it like the big switches you see in the movie Sybil.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's rarely what it looks like.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think I remember in training seeing clips from, uh, what was it, the, the Three Faces of Eve, yes. which I yeah. understand now is uh, entirely unhelpful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, according to some research Dr. Rick, Richard Clough has done, about 5% of people with full-blown DID do have more dramatic presentations like that. Mm-hmm. But that means 95% don't. <laughs> and so they may look a little moody, they may look like they don't track conversations like they have problems with attention.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and if people carefully inquire about uh, all the range of symptoms with dissociation, they may be able to report those things if they're aware of it. Yeah. Um, the problem is that people with profound amnesia, um, often don't remember their symptoms very well. So they're not always the best reporters of those mm-hmm. symptoms.
0: It it sounds like, I mean, dissociation can exist on this continuum, right? Where you have this profound, you know, um, maybe meets criteria for dissociative identity disorder. But then on the other end of the continuum would be these really subtle kind of shifts.
1: Well, actually, let me jump in. We all dissociate. We all dissociate. So on the far end of the continuum is people who don't have a dissociative disorder and have not been traumatized and who just dissociate a little bit. Right. So, you know, when you're driving on the highway and you miss your exit, and you were, you were driving just fine and paying attention, mm-hmm. but you just miss your exit because you're so absorbed in your thoughts or a conversation with, you know, people in your car, that's yeah. dissociation. Or when you get home and you've been driving just fine, but you don't really remember mm-hmm. the, the drive all that well because you were so absorbed in your radio show or dissociation right. or a, a type of dissociation is when you're so caught up in a book or a movie, you don't hear somebody around you calling you. Mm. That's the milder form of non-pathological dissociation. Mm -hmm. And then moving down the continuum, um, you know, PTSD itself is, has dissociation right in it, right? um, If somebody's having nightmares or flashbacks, those are non-integrated aspects of their experience, which means... You know, dissociation means a disconnection of normally integrated functions. So memory should be normally integrated. Trauma should be normally integrated as a life experience. So PTSD itself can be thought of as a type of a dissociative disorder. And then also in the criteria is amnesia. A person may have some amnesia uh, for some aspect of the or even the whole trauma. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like it can look a lot of different ways. And patients yeah. can present a lot of different ways. Of-
1: exactly.
0: So when you when you sit down with a patient, maybe for the first time, and you think about um, assessment, what are some of the things you're looking for? What are some of the questions that you're, gonna, you're looking for answers yeah. to that are going to help you formulate um,
1: a plan? Yep. So I teach a class and have for 20 years on diagnostic interviewing, and I have a very set psychosocial history I teach students to use, and I use that same one, where it covers all the... Normal symptoms that anybody should be asking about like the vegetative <laughs> symptoms, um, psychosocial history, including you know family of origin, education, work history, all of that. but I, I strongly believe that every mental health professional when we're doing an assessment should always take a trauma history mm-hmm. just like we always take um, a safety history, you know suicidality, homicidality, substance use and so I start to ask about a trauma history using non-leading questions, open-ended, but I ask about all the different forms of childhood trauma, so emotional abuse, physical abuse, not using those terms, but that's what I'm assessing for, Um, emotional, physical, sexual, uh, and neglect, and any kind of interpersonal violence in the family or in their childhood, Mm -hmm. adolescence, and adulthood, Um, as well as, you know, all the other kind of traumas, motor vehicle accidents, and all of that. If somebody's endorsing a significant history of trauma, then I follow up very carefully with the PTSD criteria, see if they have PTSD. And I also would follow up with some uh, questions about dissociation. So I typically start off with questions about derealization and depersonalization. And if they're endorsing that, like for example, out-of-body experiences, you know, if they ever see themselves, I'll I'll go with a kind of a stereotypical story I might hear about, you know, somebody who, when they're with their partner, um, and willingly consentingly wanting to be intimate, they have an out-of-body experience sometime where they see themselves at a distance, Mm -hmm. um, or they feel terrified when they're supposed to be intimate. That might be a suggestion that something's happened. And I would ask, you know, more cautiously, carefully around that. so I follow the client's lead in terms of what I follow up with, but everybody gets that kind of trauma history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, if I'm hearing about depersonalization and derealization, then I typically also give um, uh, like a self-report measure that's valid, scientifically reliable. For example, the Dissociative Experiences Scale, because I've you know seen hundreds, if not thousands, of those. So I know what the scores typically are. I know. What are some of the items that are really suggestive of possible serious dissociation? Mm -hmm. Um, I also know the items that we all would give a couple of pointage. You know, we'd get we most of us would endorse a little bit. So if somebody's giving denial on every single item, that might be that that they're not willing to tell me the truth. Mm -hmm. And I do forensic work. That's important to know. If somebody's not even endorsing the everyday forms of dissociation, on the other hand, on, on That measure or there's other there's many other self-report if they're endorsing everything at very high levels that's important to recognize too Um, and then I follow up and give them some follow-up questions based on for example their DES scores Uh, so if they endorse the item about not having memory for important events in their lives I'll ask for examples I'll ask when's the last time that happened and that starts to give me a clue for just how pervasive it might be.
0: So all, all of that information is going to help you kind of tailor uh, a treatment plan. And I, I want to ask you about your um, research in particular, but but maybe first just kind of talk about in general, what are some of the big things that you're trying to do therapeutically with patients who are experiencing dissociation?
1: Yeah. Um, so do you mean people with very profound dissociative disorders like DID? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So those patients um, have been traumatized very early in life. They almost always meet criteria for PTSD, or at least they have a lot of those symptoms. They often meet criteria for treatment-resistant major depression. They often have other anxiety disorders as well. They may have somatization. They may have an eating disorder. They may have a substance abuse disorder, Mm -hmm. and they typically have lots of medical problems. Mm -hmm. So just for anybody listening, if I hear about all those symptoms and a long psychiatric history that the person hasn't responded all that well to treatment that looks like it should have been helpful, um, I always do a trauma history. But when I'm doing that trauma history and hearing that kind of incredible comorbidity um, then that would be that's a typical presentation for somebody who's got a complex dissociative disorder. Mm-hmm. So the first stage um, of anybody's treatment is to figure out what are their disorders and to do it carefully. So uh, I know I'm, I'm repeating a little bit of what I've said, but just to say it explicitly, after doing a thorough evaluation for the major um, uh, what used to be called Axis One disorders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for the psychological disorders, doing a trauma history, then following up if there's, if there are symptoms of PTSD or dissociation. So let's assume I've done all that and I've got um, well-documented, reliable diagnosis of, let's say full-blown DID. Then I'm also gonna be doing an assessment um, for just how severe their symptoms are, how safe are they, What kind of self-harm are they doing? Suicide attempts? Are they um, in a safe relationship or not? Is there ongoing abuse? Because that was one of the things that surprised me when I first started working in the field. Is how many of them, and my research documents this, how many of them are still in uh, abusive relationships? Mm -hmm. So you have to do a very careful assessment of safety. Mm -hmm. And then you have to think triage in terms of all those symptoms. What must be addressed first? Um, So now I'm gonna step back for a minute. Um, People with DID are understood to have complex trauma disorders, Mm -hmm. complex early, um, often uh, years worth of of trauma. They may or may not have also adult trauma. They're at much higher risk for re-victimization in adulthood. And so you, the treatment is consistent with what is thought to be necessary for complex trauma. Mm-hmm. So with complex trauma, it's a staged treatment approach where you, in the first stage, you make the diagnoses and you stabilize the individual. And I'll, I'll come back to that. And the second stage, if the person ever leaves the first stage, some people don't get out of that stage. They're just... Sympt- so highly symptomatic and struggle so much with safety. That's where they're going to be in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, you try and help them stabilize, but some people—it's a pretty chronic struggle. Mm-hmm. Assuming the patient gets stabilized and wants to process the traumas in more depth, then that's what you begin doing. Stage two: it's grieving and processing of trauma. And then after that stage is done, then it moves into the stage three, which is um, integration in society, integration if they've got a dissociative disorder, integration within themselves to whatever extent the person is capable and wants to do that. Mm -hmm. So that complex trauma model is laid out beautifully in Judith, uh, Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery. That's the number one book I recommend everybody read. If you're going to just read one trauma book, do that one.
0: Good. Um, it's the one we use in, in my trauma course.
1: <laughs> fabulous. That's the one I still use too. Um, it's just that good. <laughs> yeah. All the research isn't up to date, but her understanding of trauma is just um, phenomenal. Yep. So the treatment for DID is consistent with that. And I'll um, share that the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. ISSTD has on their website free treatment guidelines anybody can download for the treatment of adults with DID and for the treatment of kids and adolescents with dissociative disorders. So everybody who wants to learn more about it should go there, that's like a first stop kind of place. Um, So the model I'm talking about is consistent with that. So you stabilize all the symptoms, which is daunting. (laughs) And takes a while a long long while um, then you may move into trauma processing if the individual wants to and has the resources to do that mm-hmm. so stage one and this goes into my research um, i have a, a i'm the primary investigator on a, a series of studies called the treatment of patients with dissociative disorders abbreviated top dd treatment of patients so The top DD studies, um, the first one was a longitudinal naturalistic study where we had both patients and therapists participate. Um, You know, the diet had to agree to participate together. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had patients from all around the world fill out surveys episodically throughout 30 months of treatment. Um, The goal behind that was to assess how did they do over time with their symptoms, their safety, um, their quality of life. Well, we didn't assess that with a measure. We had um, daily functioning kinds of measures, Mm -hmm. hospitalization, suicide attempts. And those outcomes, almost every last one showed significant improvement over time. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know that one group of the critics, um, the, the false memory folks, say that the treatment has never been proven to be helpful to these patients and can be harmful, in fact. That's what they write. Yeah. They cite each other. They <laughs> cite each other's opinion pieces,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they don't cite top DD almost ever. The findings there, we have um, 14 publications from the first top DD study. They almost never cite it. Or if they cite it, they say that there was no control group, which is a totally just and accurate criticism. Mm-hmm. There was no control group. Nonetheless, patients were less suicidal, less self-harming, less hospitalizations. There was a trend for re-victimizations to go down, less dissociation, less PTSD, less drug use, and treatment costs went down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's nothing that would suggest that the treatment was harmful. Yeah. Right. I mean, just nothing. Um, okay, then we just recently concluded the top DD network study, which it was an online intervention Again, with patients around the world, patients and therapists had to participate together because I'm not licensed to practice around the world and I wanted to make sure those had backup if they had crises and I wanted we, the whole team, I've got Frank Putnam and Ruth Lanias and Ugo Schilke and Rich Lowenstein, like the brains, like the dream team um, uh, around, of, of researchers and clinicians from around the world for DID. We developed this online, program with short videos, you know, usually 10 to 15 minute long videos, it's me in the videos describing baby step by baby step, what safety is and why it's important for people who've been traumatized to get safer. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind that all their self-harm is actually an adaptation to manage as best they can emotional overwhelm, dissociation, suicidal thoughts, So they're using, let's say, for example, cutting, when they're feeling ashamed or angry. They hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not the healthiest form of coping. So we try and teach them in these videos how to identify what causes them to be unsafe and then how to begin planning different healthier ways of coping. Mm -hmm. All of that was on videos, supplemented every week by, it was 45 videos supplemented each week by um, journaling exercises that were related to the content of the videos and behavioral practice exercises. So they had to write up a list of why do you think you've ever Mm self-harmed? And then could you go back through that list over the course of the whole intervention Mm -hmm. and make up alternative coping lists that are healthier for each of those functions that self-harm has served for you? What could be two or three healthier ways to manage that exact same thing now keep practicing it so it was heavy uh, a heavy focus on safety before we got to that because that stirs people up right (laughs) don't take that that's that's my way of breathing that's my way of staying afloat in the world before that we had to teach them what does complex trauma do to people so that they would understand themselves and be compassionate with themselves um, they don't feel compassionate towards themselves. They feel profoundly ashamed, yeah. and like a failure and worthless. And so we were trying to teach self-understanding, self-compassion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And to do that, we had to educate them about symptoms and that these are symptoms, not character flaws. These are adaptations. They may get in your way uh, sometimes, um, but you can learn and do different things with, um, instead of cutting, for example. Mm-hmm. So, tons of education and self compassion. And um, then we got into teaching them about how to deal with emotions because a lot of where self harm and suicide attempts come from is directly from emotions. Sure. And they've got poor emotion regulation skills. Mm-hmm. They have, I, I'm oversimplifying and I mean nobody disrespect, but sure. in, they have dissociation and self harm mm-hmm. for many, many of these clients. And so, We needed to help them see how those things were helpful, can be helpful. We know their adaptations, but also where that leads you in life. You know, are you actually feeling really happy and satisfied with your life? Are you able to take good care of yourself, your pets, your children, your relationships? You know, we tried to help them see the costs Mm -hmm. of that way of coping. Um, And then we started to slowly, slowly help them deal with emotions in different, safer ways. Mm That's a very big struggle, because emotions feel incredibly dangerous to people who have complex trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the third piece of the intervention was to teach them what dissociation is, and how it's been helpful, and how can it get in the way, and for them to start figuring out, are there any ways it gets in your way? Any downsides to it, of course, there are upsides. Talk about that with your therapist and journal. And you know, we had them really dealing with this in a pretty complex way. And then we taught them, we gave them over a hundred ways to get grounded, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we had to practice. So, anyway, that that was a very big intervention two years um, of access to all those educational materials. They and their therapist had to watch the entire program know about the entire program so therapists knew exactly what they were learning step by step and our outcome um, our outcomes were really good even though that was only two years we we showed just very similar results to the first top dd study um, and therapists and patients showed increases in their knowledge about that patient's symptoms and management techniques mm-hmm. and so we got that study published in the journal of traumatic stress um, in 2019 and that's huge because that journal has had very. In that society, it's a different society. It's the International Society for the Study of Traumatic Stress. That's more of a mainstream uh, trauma group, and there have been a, a pretty loud <laughs> uh, um, criticisms of DID and some doubt about that diagnosis within that group. So the fact that their their journal published huh. top DD yep. network studies shows like. That's pretty important step of recognition within the trauma field, that this treatment was useful.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the research itself, with top DD and, and the top DD network study, I mean, just really significant work, really important work, robust findings um, in the top DD network, especially, I mean, can be tr- such a tremendous resource, I think, for clinicians. You mentioned all around the world yes. um, folks are using this, which is just, which is incredible really
1: yeah, significant. Thank you. That's how we felt. We felt yeah. like this can be helpful. I, I, one thing I haven't mentioned is there's not enough clinicians to treat dissociative patients. Yeah. Uh, uh, very few clinicians have really been well-trained in how to assess it and treat it. And so literally I, I get calls and emails from around the world, people desperate for therapists who know how to treat it. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the goal is not just to show that interventions and treatment can help, but also to try and train therapists around the world about the very beginning basic steps of treating a dissociative patient. And so we showed both effects. um, Patients improve, but therapist and patient knowledge also improves. So hopefully they can help other people in their practice.
0: Well, let me segue from that then to to one of my last questions here. I know we're running short on time, but I mean, what does it take to be a really effective clinician who's working with patients with complex trauma, working with patients with, with dissociation? I know there's, there's a lot of emotional demands uh, in, in this kind of work. And and, and so what, what, what does it take in your experience? What has it found to be really effective in this work?
1: Um, I could go on and answer for quite some time. I'll try and be brief. Um, Somebody needs to be very well grounded in the research um, and use best practices, uh, evidence-based practices, but they can't be rigid about that because
2: Mm.
1: in psychotherapy outcome research, including in the, the trauma field, the patients who get excluded from those studies are almost always the most severely traumatized people. Mm -hmm. So if you look at exclusion criteria in any, almost any treatment study, people are kicked out who are actively, currently suicidal, extraordinarily self-harming, currently using substances, who have psychotic symptoms, perhaps who have bipolar uh, symptoms, bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is the people who use the adaptations for really severe trauma are not in the PTSD trials. (laughs) They get excluded. So the evidence-based treatment, you know, prolonged exposure, EMDR, uh, cognitive processing therapy, they have a much narrower group of patients who have participated in those studies. Mm -hmm. We didn't exclude anybody from top DD, no matter how suicidal they were whether they heard voices and might have also had a psychotic disorder, whether they have been hospitalized multiple times in the last year. We kept, yeah. we allowed everybody who wanted to do the work, let a therapist who would do the work join. So coming back, it, it, students need, uh, therapists need really good trauma training and they need to know about what are the evidence-based treatments, but they're going to have to adapt those and know a lot more about that three-stage, uh, stabilization kind of treatment for complex trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, To do that, I think they need to seek out a lot of additional training. Um, In grad school, you get the beginnings of understanding how to be a therapist, but you have to go well beyond that and seek out more training um, and make sure you're going to very good workshops. Um, Go to these professional organizations like ISSTD that teach about how to work with dissociative patients. so you need the training you need the learning you also need need peer support it's incredibly important to seek out consultation supervision and hopefully you have a you can develop a peer supervision group in an ongoing way where you get to share cases with other people confidentially who all know about how to treat trauma and who support each other because the work is really hard really lonely at times and You know, you can start struggling with your own secondary PTSD or real doubts about what to do with the client. Mm -hmm. The third big piece is that your self-care has got to be very, very good. So the work is incredibly rewarding, but it's also draining. And so people have to have ways to take care of their own health, their own emotional stability. Um, So, for example, now when I go do I do death penalty work, uh, forensic work, Um, I'm asked to come and go into a jail or prison, and I hear horrible stories Mm. of of trauma um, in the lives of people who've committed murder. And I'm not going to be able to treat them, and I know in my head they're never going to get really good treatment. And you know, so that's just a current aspect of of my own professional work. I have to be very careful. When I go to those places I try and work out you know back at the hotel room and when I come home the first thing I want to do is reconnect with people who are important to me like to regain my sense of okay the world isn't just trauma and awful and so everybody needs to figure out their own ways of doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recommend people see only trauma survivors even though for years I did that while I specialized and worked at Shepherd Pratt in my own small private practice now, I diversify my clients. I don't just have extremely unstable DID patients or extremely unstable self-harming trauma survivors. I try and have uh, folks who are just different, you know, so there's a range of of people I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And so I also exercise, get massage or acupuncture meditation, really good social connections. I have to be out in nature quite often. (laughs) I know what works for me. Everybody needs to figure that out. Um, And I also, I I guess last thing, I highly recommend people have been in their own therapy and have come to resolve and that they're willing to go back anytime they need it again when their own issues get activated by this work or just by life, that they seek out their own support.
0: That's so, so helpful. Thank you for that. Well, um, you, you mentioned some of the rewards of this work. Um, what, what are some of the rewards for you and what keeps you hopeful?
1: So I'll try, I'll answer it two ways. You know, now that I'm doing all this research, which I never meant to be a researcher.
0: <laughs> <I think laughs> Funny how, how works. that
1: works. Right? <laughs> Funny how that works. I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought I was just going to be a clinician. <laughs> and then I just started seeing how desperately We needed research Um, and doing that work full time the way I was doing it back at the hospital with a pager on, taking my own emergency calls all night long. That wasn't a healthy lifestyle to do for for more than six years. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I went into academia and I teach students now about trauma and help them understand it and go out and treat it and assess it. So for me, I've broadened my impact by who knows how what, oh, what power of 10, but it's gone much, much wider. That helps me. So I'm not just doing clinical work. I do trainings as well. And I now, of course, I also do research and forensic work. Um, you have to measure progress in clients sometimes. And you have to see the very big picture. Like look at progress, um, unfortunately, for many in terms of years. Like, is their quality of life improving?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you can't get, uh, you know, a massive change in somebody who's got profound chronic developmental trauma. You're not going to see it in 12 or 16 weeks, usually. Sometimes you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to be very careful uh, about our own wishes for a patient. <laughs> um Remember, a supervisor told me that my therapeutic zeal, I was a trainer, a trainee, could be uh, um, harmful to my patients because I so badly wanted them to get better. I so badly wanted them Mm -hmm. to, you know, heal and recover and live a full life. And at that point, I was also naive about how long all that took. And so he thought that I could hold them back inadvertently. So I have absolutely seen progress over long term. Um, from time to time, I've been in this so long now, people contact me and let me know. Somebody just last week, I'm still with that guy. I got out of the violent relationship. I haven't gone back to him. And now I've just gotten my nursing degree. This was somebody who was floundering because of domestic violence. Um, so I know stories like that. And I actually keep a file of some of the thank yous I've gotten over the years from students and from patients. Um, And obviously a lot of them are just in my head now. And I remember the work we did, even if I couldn't totally cure them, which is unfortunately with profound dissociative disorders, that's gonna be the nature, that's the reality in many cases. I can see how they can have healthier friendships and they understand themselves and they can laugh more. One woman desperately wanted to have children. She couldn't bear children, but she was an incredible pet owner.
2: Hmm.
1: And in her world, taking really good care of her pets and her body over time, that was success. Hmm. And so when we said goodbye, we are both tearful. I mean, our work meant the world to us. Hmm. So I I know that's long-winded and rambling, but...
0: (laughs) That was perfect. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you well uh I, I will be sure to send a thank you uh that you can put in that in that file i really appreciate your, your time. i really appreciate you sharing your your wisdom uh with us and you know if, if anyone who listens to this if they want to learn more about you or keep up with your work um what's the best way for them to to do that
1: oh okay thank you um so i have my own personal website bethanybrand.com um, that's usually fairly up to date. <laughs> um, the teach uh, I have a teachtrauma.com website too that also has all sorts of factual, accurate information about trauma, um, links to studies, the debates about dissociative disorders and false memories, all of it's there. So you can go there and you can download um, PowerPoint slides mm-hmm. for any instructors who might be listening or students who want to get some more references for a paper, they can go to that site. And then for TopDD, um, we have the topdd.com uh, study, uh, topddstudy.com website to learn more about where are we, you know, because we hope to be doing this for years and years to come
0: great. I'll make sure to link to, to all of those resources on the, on the page. But uh, again, thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. I really appreciate you.
1: Me uh, too. Congratulations on teaching your students about trauma, including dissociative disorders. Just not enough professors do that.
0: This first season of the podcast is supported by the Sawyer Digital Proficiencies Initiative at Messiah College. If you want to learn more about Messiah, you can visit us online at messiah.edu. Thanks for listening. Class dismissed.